marketers got addicted to the click. Uh, we went from being seen as the team that sits in the corner playing with crayons to having to draw an exact like line from every dollar out to like a dollar back in in revenue. And so we got really obsessed with things that are easy. Welcome to the B2B Digitized Podcast, where leaders of B2B technology startups and scale-ups learn how to use digital transformation to differentiate, educate, build trust, improve competitive positioning, close sales faster without compromise, and scale revenue growth. Now here's your host, Joshua Feinberg from SP Home Run. Hi, it's Joshua Feinberg from the B2B Digitized Podcast, and I have a very special guest here with me today. I'm welcoming Sam Malakarjan, who's the founder and CEO of OneScreen. Sam, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me and for being one of the few podcast hosts who actually say my name right on the first time, but you also have like a long time practicing, so... Yeah, I'm trying to think the first time we met may have been at Inbound yep. 2013. My first Inbound was in Inbound 2013. I think you were on yeah. a panel maybe with some uh, CMS developers where they even, I don't even remember if they were calling it the CMS back then, but. Maybe, yeah, I, I, I had one talk and then I gave some, uh, some panel. I think I was doing my like how to survive the future talk back then. That's awesome. So for viewers and listeners and readers that aren't familiar with your background, could you walk us through how you got to where you are in your current role, what you were doing before that, and some other things that would be of special interest to people that are on B2B revenue generation? Yeah. So the, the elevator pitch version is uh, I hosted an AM FM talk radio show in Tampa about cigars uh, and then ended up building websites for everybody in the cigar industry. And then had no idea how to help them make money with it. So I hopped on Google, found this weird company called HubSpot, um, built a website called HireMeHubSpot.com to register for, for the free webinar on why you should hire me back in 2011. Um, got a job there. Uh, that was uh, fun. I was, there, I was there for a long time. I was uh, led our e-commerce team, uh, led our marketing expansion to Latin America. And then I was the head of growth at HubSpot Labs. Um, after that, I was the chief revenue officer for flock.com. And then uh, for the last man, 14 months, uh, you know, myself and a bunch of other former HubSpotters are getting the band back together to make the physical world inbound. That's so cool. And you've done some teaching along the way too. Yes. Uh, I taught advanced digital marketing and innovation management at Harvard University. And then um, I also taught at the college I dropped out of. I was a faculty chair at the University of South Florida, um, which was a lot of fun. That's cool. So yeah, I remember Hire Me HubSpot. That was one of the more innovative recruitment, digital disruption kind of stories at the time. So that was, I guess, an ABM campaign of one that worked out super well. And nobody really called it ABM back then. <laughs> but um, I mean, I was a college dropout and the host of a talk radio show. So my chances of getting hired at HubSpot were pretty slim. Like I, I wasn't optimistic, even with the campaign. Um, and so the fact that I knew I wasn't going to get the job freed me up to uh, be more innovative. Like when you know you're going to fail, it like really clears your mind uh, to do something that, you know, is a little different and then you don't fail. My first job in school, they were looking, I was a student rep for IBM on campus and they said specifically must be at least a sophomore. I was a freshman and they wanted people who were like a technical major. I think it was comp science engineering. I was like an econ major, but I applied anyway and ended up. They say the, the answer to every question you don't ask is no. Too many people fire themselves from jobs before they apply to it. 
the, it's the hiring manager's job to know if you're a good fit for the role. It's your job to know if the role's a good fit for you. Like your job's hard enough. Don't do theirs too. It's like they say they want someone with uh, three years experience doing 10 years of marketing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So when you think about someone that's first getting started today in B2B marketing, B2B revenue generation, what advice would you offer to someone to set their career up for success? What should they be expecting to think about? What are the, kind of the potholes in the road that you help them navigate around? Um, a couple. One, understand that marketing is a service agency within your business. So we tend to have marketing teams sit together, which is a dumb idea. At HubSpot, we actually split the teams up. So marketing would sit intermixed with sales, et cetera. Um, become friends with your sales team if you have it or your engineering team if you're e-commerce and become friends with your finance team. Because while people think HubSpot was, you know, lovey, happy, huggy, make loves, not spam, and they were, um, what really made them successful as a company was they had really good grasp on their unit economics. You could ask any like junior marketing associate, what's our target, like customer lifetime value to customer acquisition cost ratio, and they would have been able to tell you. And that was our, really our secret to success at HubSpot. Was it uh, having a really tight focus on unit economics, like CAC, LTV, payback, all that stuff? In alignment, right? So um, like I, I went to the weddings of people on the sales team and not people on the marketing team. Um, which not because I didn't like people on the marketing team, but because the culture that we had, and I think is one of the reasons they were successful. And I've learned so much is uh, create relationships with people outside of your pod, because if the marketing team is successful and the sales team is not, you all still get laid off. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So you were there around the time when probably the debate was going on to freemium or not to freemium. And obviously the club spot's been ridiculously successful with product-led growth and the free CRM product last five, six years. How did that all play out? Um, it was hard. So uh, I'll be honest, and, and the HubSpot founders would agree. If freemium had been a thing in 2006, HubSpot would have started off with freemium. Uh, you get much more rapid adoption. Uh, you start at the low end of the market, but disruptive innovation usually starts at the low end and, and moves up anyways. Um, but it wasn't really a thing <laughs> when we started. And uh, also SaaS was so new that you weren't raising these mega rounds. Um, it, it was still a new concept to say, you're going to lose money and break even on a customer in the future. Uh, to say like, you're going to lose money on customers and then figure out how to make money on them in the future is not really something investors back in the mid 2000s would have been super bullish on. Um, but it was it was the right thing to do, right? Like. Uh, you, you, can, you will cannibalize some of your revenue. You'll have some people who downgrade, but you will also have much better success with customer retention long-term because the people who start using your product and start paying for it have already been using, using it to some extent. They already know it. They're familiar with it. They've seen value. Um, so unless you're enterprise SaaS or some kind of specialized thing, um, do freemium, right? It's, it's, if, you're, if you're not doing it already, it is very hard change management to eat from engineering, economics, sales, customer success. But if you have the option to have a freemium motion, you should do it. Yeah, I remember, if, think about probably about 10 years or so, it didn't, it was kind of sort of there, but didn't get any respect. Like people didn't take it seriously. It was kind of like looking at the 20 pound bags of cat food 20 years ago where people like, yeah, we're going to lose money for a while and then we'll eventually figure it out on scale. And that led to the whole bubble thing. And I think 
I don't know what actually caused it to break through, whether it was Dropbox or someone like that to trying to really figure out that there was a way to get people to realize value and, and trade up over time. But yeah, it's definitely changed the trajectory of SaaS, especially on the SMB side. You know, it, it pays to be an early adopter, uh, like Dropbox, Slack, et cetera. Um, like, you know, Brex was one of the first startups to use billboards to launch. And now they're a $7 billion company and every startup in Silicon Valley is buying billboards on 101. Um, and the, it's just a conceptual shift. It's still a lead, right? It's just instead of a lead that downloads an ebook, learns something, and then you teach them uh, how to use your paid product. It's somebody who's downloads your product, starts using, learns how to use your product, and then starts using your paid product. So it was just a conceptual shift, um, especially for the sales team who's used to going for the close instead of going for coaching. I, it was interesting too, from looking at it from the partner perspective, the HubSpot user group perspective, the academy perspective, it seemed at some point, a lot of the things that started as intended for customers, like, wow, you know, we can teach courses for non-customers and we'll have this great following of people that are certified in all of our social media and email marketing. Oh, great. We're running these user groups already for customers. Why don't we invite non-customers and they can best pollinate? Oh, we have this great conference. That's exactly what happened. Uh, HubSpot Academy was originally called One to Many. Um, and it was just a way to, how do we do customer success training for users? Uh, you know, when somebody's like not paying you enough money to justify having like an actual human being do it one-on-one, -on -one. Um, especially back then, remember like a lot of these inbound marketing was new. Now it's taught in universities, but I still remember having to convince CEOs that ranking on search engines was a worthwhile business goal before I then like taught them how to use SEO software and do blogging and things like that. Come full circle. Now I saw um, Brand Fishkin was sharing some study a couple of weeks ago. That like sixty percent of searches now. I think Hip Partner was doing something uh, Clubhouse on this a couple of days ago too. That sixty percent of searches end up with no clicks, where the people are getting exactly what they want from the top of the search engine result page or from basking Alexa or Google, whatever, and they don't click anymore, which completely changes the dynamics of building a whole content engine building a brand and building following and reach. Yeah. Marketers got addicted to the click. Uh, we went from being seen as the team that sits in the corner playing with crayons to having to draw an exact like line from every dollar out to like a dollar back in in revenue. And so we got really obsessed with things that are easy. Um, you know, somebody like does a search, they click on it, they come to your website, they convert. Like that was something that was really easy to understand and wrap your mind around and do a budget around. Um, but like, it's not how human beings work, right? Like you want the answer to a question that educates you. And then you hear a podcast, uh, and that moves you down the funnel. Like, um, it was always an unnatural behavior to have to ask a question and then click a link and then pray that was the right answer. Like read a bunch of stuff to like get the answer. And then at the bottom is like a CTA that says, we only give you part of the answer, but if you click this, we'll give you like the rest of the answer. That was an unnatural behavior. And so... Um, you know, the world has fixed that and now we, we have to adapt to how consumers actually learn. Yeah. I find when I'm talking to companies that are completely new to this, yes, it's important to get them thinking awareness, consideration, the decision, but as soon as they grasp that, it's important to tell them this isn't someone that's going to do step one, step two, step three, and 90% of the people are going to follow that exact path in the same order. And that's going to be it for the touch points. It's like, it's so all over the place, but you got to start somewhere. It's a, the big, the big sin of like marketing automation too, is, um, 
like if somebody abandons your shopping cart or somebody downloads an email, like send them an email to do the next step in the buyer's journey. They don't do it. Send them an email to do the next step in the buyer's journey. They don't do it. Like, come on. Like, uh, you know, that's not how people think. It's not, none of us have ever made a decision that way. We've never gone like, I'm in awareness. I'm now in consideration. I now have the intent to buy. I have now bought. Um, and so I think that the great thing about the evolution in tech of the last half decade has been that we have to treat like customers as if they're actual people. Theory, the models should eventually be able to pick up on that and figure out exactly and tell us what their journey really was for and predict what a journey is going to be like for a person like that. I don't know if we're five, 10 years away in it, but it seems like some of the pieces are getting built with that. Yeah, I feel like, so I've spent most of my career trying to get marketers to use more data. And I feel kind of like Prometheus gave us fire. And then instead of using it to like light up the night, we burned down our village on accident. Um, marketers need to be comfortable with the fact that like, we're not a, we're not a hard science. We're a social science, economics. Um, data can help us make better decisions, but it's never going to tell us the whole story. Uh, and we have to get comfortable with, you know, the fact that we're not going to have there's not going to be like an answer to a spreadsheet that we can point to and say that, that this is the, the right answer for everybody. The data just tells the story of groups of people, not like, here's what your job should be. Cause then you don't need marketers, right? Like just hire a consultant to design the optimal flow uh, or use some kind of like machine learning based personalization app. And then you don't need any marketers. Speaking back to marketers, so some great advice to be thinking about like unit economics, be thinking about it planning your marketing team as a, a service agency internally, what advice would you offer to someone who's like a, a veteran of inbound marketing, digital marketing, content marketing, like 10 years or more, but they went through a really rough year. Maybe their team has turned over a lot. Maybe their customers turned over a lot and they're trying to press the reset button, get them back on track. Um, maybe it's a former alum that you work with. Um, what would you advise someone in that situation? Uh, there's the practical advice and then there's the like leadership advice. One, everybody needs to remember that, you know, if, if we have a stress O meter of out of zero to 10, right. And normally everybody in the world's at a two right now, we're all like, all at like a six. So there's only like four notches able to be used. Uh, fortunately your competitors are in the same position as well, but like nobody in the U S needs to be told to work harder right now. The biggest danger is burnout. Um, you become less creative. Uh, when you're, when you're stressed, there's tons of uh, research on that. Um, and you risk people like, you know, quitting or, or going to another company. Um, like understanding the fact that things that didn't used to be our jobs, like, especially when this was all first starting, having to communicate to younger people on the team, like basic health science, because they, they didn't know some of that stuff. Um, or having to, uh, be a lot more accommodating to people's personal lives. Um, like they're, my, my favorite life advice comes from airline safety videos, which is secure your own mask before assisting others. It doesn't mean you don't care about like the baby in the seat next to you, but like if you can't breathe, anybody who relies on you is screwed. Um, so that's the like the leadership advice. The, the practical advice is, uh, I hate this like new normal like phrase that everybody has, but this is an opportunity to reset. B great growth comes from um, you know, disruptions in normality. That's why there was so much of like a Cambrian explosion of startups after the last, uh, the great recession in, in 2008, this is an opportunity to try new things. Um, your competitors are 
uh, in the same position you are, your customers are in the same, like things have fundamentally changed and just trying to reset to go back to what you're like, this isn't a video game where you die and then you go back to like the last save point, right? Like this is, um, trying to understand what are the new opportunities, kind of like my hiring me HubSpot thing, right? If, if everybody's, if you're already screwed, try something new. So how would that thinking, we can walk us through a little bit what you're doing now with one screen, because uh, it seems very apropos with kind of, did that, the idea for that start before where we are right now, did it start in the middle of this to envision as people start going back out that, um, when people to be looking up at screens as opposed to looking down at screens. That is one of our one-liners. Uh, so nice to know that smart guy like you uh, came up with the same one. Uh, no. I'm sure. I'm sure I saw it on your feed at some point. Oh, maybe. Uh, so th this company was an accident. Uh, it started out as a bunch of HubSpotters wanted to help small businesses survive lockdowns, and the idea was, what if there was Google Display Network for screens in the real world? Because um, there's TVs that run inside, like a bar or restaurant. Just one, the ads are terrible uh, and untargeted. And two, the, the business is actually paying for those instead of like getting paid, which is how the internet works. Uh, so we built that prototype. And then we did what we kind of half jokingly called a reverse stealth mode. We called everybody in what's the out of home industry, which, you know, you think of like billboards and stuff like that, but it's also, you know, place-based ads inside of, you know, taxis and bars and restaurants, et cetera, um, wrapped cars, all this stuff is out of home. Um, and realized that it was the most ridiculously archaic industry that that one of the most archaic industries that's still functioning. So it's a $40 billion a year are spent on out of home advertising. And let, let me ask you this. If you wanted to buy every billboard within 50 miles of where you are right now, would you know how? Not even close. So you can't, right? Because there's never been like a directory of who, where all the billboards are and who owns them. And it's not like a, a, like the, the large companies, top 10 companies own less than 14% of the available inventory. Um, and so, but they're like impactful, they're fun, right? Like we don't give out awards for AdWords campaigns, but you know, you can have, uh, you know, murals on a wall. Uh, you can have um, dominoes that they're like filling in potholes, like being really creative. I was actually joking uh, the other day, I said for a customer's uh, anniversary campaign in their city, I'm like, let's just, wrap an ice cream truck in their branding and just like have it drive around their city uh, to say thank you. And there's a startup that there's a company that does that. Right. And so our whole thing was our obsession with analytics as marketers has kind of one, it's made it very competitive Two, it's made it not fun anymore. Right. Like we've turned into financial analysts. Uh, if I want to spend all day looking at spreadsheets, I'd go work for JP Morgan, which no, totally fine. Like legit profession, just, not what I want to do. Um, and I've had more fun in the last year with uh, being able to be creative, but in a way that still has those performance metrics. So I know I'm doing well for the company, um, but I'm also, yeah, I'm getting to have fun at work again. Like marketers, listen, we do good for our businesses. That was the, the analytics revolution. We do good for our customers. That was the inbound revolution. And I don't have a name for this yet, but the third revolution needs to be like, we should be proud at the end of the day that we did work that we found fun and that was enjoyable and that we want to wake up tomorrow and actually and do again something new and interesting. What's interesting is the first time that I started noticing those TV ads in restaurants, probably about five or six years ago in the area of Florida, I live in, in Palm Beach County, which 
is parts of it are like Boca del Vista on Seinfeld, where there's very, very heavily concentrated active adult. And I'm pretty sure it was in places like restaurants that were heavily frequented by people my parents' age with boomers that like pre-pandemic, we'd eat, eat out nine days a week. They like, they don't believe in cooking anymore when they come and retire. So yes, they had all of these ads and you're right. They were probably real estate, um, funeral homes, life insurance, landscaping, cruises, you know, all, all the things that are top of mind for a, uh, a senior. And, you're, and more than likely, because they were targeting the campaigns, they were getting it largely right for someone that was purchasing the kinds of things that my parents were purchasing. But you know, when it comes to their kids and the grandkids, totally off the mark. Nobody's talking about renting bounce houses or summer camp or Disney cruises or, hmm. you're right. Yeah, that, that's like, if you're a beer marketer, you should be able to say, I only want my TV commercials to run in bars. Like that makes sense, <laughs> but that, that doesn't happen, right? Because TV commercials are sold in like DMA areas. It's gonna show in like nursing homes as well. Um, and that's just like an aberration. So our, our whole like thesis after we did our reverse stealth mode and got excited about this was if we can make the real world uh, work as efficiently and organize data the same way Google did, et cetera, uh, for the internet, then you can create better experiences for people and better outcomes for the brands. So all of a sudden it becomes as accountable as buying a search ad or display ad, right? Yeah, and it changes the nature of the business, right? With local businesses, um, like they can make money, which is again, the whole point, uh, or like most billboards are actually owned by small local businesses. Again, they're not owned by large enterprises. Uh, it's a common misconception. Um, but they, my favorite example of this is uh, we have an advertiser who's a liquor store in Boston, and there are 3% of people who go to the liquor store and then go to work. I'm super interested to find out who they are. But in general, right, like you, this, the it's, it's not even that complicated and it's just nobody's done it before. Don't show people ads to get them to go to the liquor store if you think they're on their way to work, unless they have something in common with those 3% of people. So relatively basic stuff, but now you've got this, like the internet's actually small. It feels big, but it's very small. Right now I'm looking at the internet and it's occupying this much of my attention and then the rest of the world is happening around me. Uh, and that's that's exciting to be able to, to start creating experiences there. I noticed on your website and on social that you are doing a lot of awareness and education around QR code marketing. Is that a key piece of the glue that connects all this together? I, I almost, I argued against us adding QR codes to the platform at all. Um, but suddenly somehow everybody on planet earth like had to figure out how to use QR codes. Uh, kind of like everybody had to figure out how to use Zoom. Um, and I'm not sure if QR codes are the long-term answer, but they, they work now. You want to make the world interactive, right? It's, uh, there's no mouse that I can use to click on things in the real world to influence uh, a digital experience. Uh, and it's just the, it's the low-hanging fruit, the obvious like short-term. It's like the listserv. Uh, uh, what the listserv was to email marketing is what the QR code is to actually having an interactive, immersive real-world experience. It's better than what we had previously. I'm not sure it's going to be the solution forever, but it's definitely something like you should try. You should use and see if you can use it in a creative way that, um, that again, like conforms to your buyer's journey. I think about QR codes. It's one of those things that for whatever reason, I haven't left it permanently installed on my Android phone over the years, but I find myself from time to time at a stadium, at a museum or something, and there's something cool enough that it's worth going to the play store and spending a minute to download it to actually be able to get access to that. Um, I wonder if there's a lot more people like that that are casual QR scanners as opposed to 
people that have a top of mind that are just constantly like, oh, cool, it's this QR card. Let me see, let me see what it is. I mean, it comes natively in a lot of mobile device cameras nowadays. Like you just open your camera app and if you mouse it over um, a QR code, it'll, it'll resolve it into whatever it is. Um, and you can be creative with it too. Like you can make it say a phone number, you can make it say text, um, you could bring it to starting a live chat. Like it's not just, you know, it's again, like trying to use QR codes as if they were a click on the internet is not necessarily the right way to do it. So there's, there's a lot more interesting and creative ways that people can use those in a way that like makes them fun to use. Is that one of the bigger mistakes you see people making is they're not taking like the whole user experience into account of what someone's gonna see when they get to their site or where they're directing? Marketers do this a lot. Remember when everybody used to say uh, social media ads don't work, but it's because they were taking their Google AdWords creative, putting it on Facebook and then wondering like why um, an ad that was built for somebody literally in the intent phase of the buyer's journey wasn't working for somebody who was trying to like keep up with their friends and wasn't actively searching for anything. Um, yeah, like people try to use uh, new things in ways that are familiar, which is a natural reflex and it's an understandable reflex, but it's also not the, not the right reflex. You should think about what's the right way to use this. What's the way that people are going to enjoy the most. It's going to create the most value. And see that even with something as basic with videos, somebody creates a video, they're thinking originally YouTube. So at the end of the YouTube video, they're encouraging people to subscribe to their channel and they go and they take the exact same MP4 and put it on LinkedIn. What channel on LinkedIn? And it's not just a, a aspect ratio or form factor. It's like a completely different kind of CTA that you want at the end to be more native and slightly more relevant. And different, different types too. Like you go to YouTube to watch videos. You're not on LinkedIn to watch videos usually. Right. So, or Facebook ads, like Facebook video ads have evolved so much uh, in the last five years. And that's something that, um, you know, that good marketers have learned, right. Is you need a different creative for a different experiential medium. Coming full circle on all that, where do you think we're headed next? What do you see going on right now where we're going to look back in 18, 24 months from now and see that there was just a major inflection point happening with how B2B digital marketing, B2B sales enablement is happening. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I try to avoid that kind of myopia, but there's a reason I'm doing this. We have all OD'd on digital over the last year. Like we don't need to look at our phones anymore. We're caught up on our friends. We're all tired of staring at Zoom video. Like we, some large e-commerce companies I talk to, it's actually a strategic threat to them that going to the store is now like an, an outing, like an event, right? Um, the, and meanwhile, you know, the good movements in privacy are making things like Facebook ads and Google ads less targeted and therefore more competitive and less ROI positive. Um, I think we're going to, we're going to look at this period of time as the point where we sort of like broke out of these four walls, like the, this, it's the origin of the name one screen. The only screen that matters is the screen that's useful to your customer. Um, and, and break out like the, the internet and that's sort of like, myopic view of the world and start thinking about how do we create experiences that uh, that go beyond just just this because it's, it's not going to work anymore right like we're not like, like you said even with Google ads right people want the answer um, and this was a forcing factor to something that was already happening people want to go outside they want to look up they want to um, have fun experiences again um, and that's not something you're going to do by doing your 5,000th AV test on your Google AdWords creative all about the experience. That's awesome. Tying it back full circle. Sam, what's the best way for someone to reach out to you if they want to connect or have any questions on anything you talked about today? Are you active on LinkedIn? Is that the best channel for you? 
Uh, Maxim on LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, the good thing about my last name is if you Google anything even close to it, you'll find me. Uh, so, you know, you can definitely find me that way. Uh, or you can go check out onescreen.ai. Just we're an early stage tech startup and the website is terrible because I designed it. So we have a new head of marketing who just started. Don't blame him for the website. Um, but yeah, you can find us on, definitely find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, I love talking to marketers, right? It's how I learn. Uh, and I also like sort of sharing whatever uh, insights that I can because the rising tide raises all boats. We all got to get better. That's terrific. Thanks, Sam, for joining me today on the podcast. It's been awesome. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks for listening to this episode of the B2B Digitized Podcast. To subscribe and leave a review, check us out at b2bdigitize.com or wherever you like to consume podcast episodes, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube.